Our Bible reading today comes from 2 Samuel, uh, chapter 8. We read from verse 1 to 15, but we'll pick uh, 1 to 3, 6 to 7, and 9 to 15. It's on page 260. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methigama out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab, and he measured them out with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, and he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. Let's go to verse 6. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David, and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadiza and brought them to Jerusalem. Verse 9. When Toi, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadiza, Toi sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him, because he had fought against Hadadiza and defeated him, for Hadadiza had often been at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, and the, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadiza, the son, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons. And all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Verse 15. So David reigned over all Israel. And David administered justice and equity to all his people. Please keep your Bibles open. Thanks, George. And... I think that uh, uh, the youth group are going to go out and uh, learn how to spell Hadadiza backwards. <laughs> and all sorts of clever things like that. But we'll stay here and we'll look at uh, 2 Samuel chapter 8. And as we come at this chapter, let me ask you a simple question. Why does God like roughing people up so much? Because that's what it seems like when you look at this part of the Bible, that God's king 
is in charge of amazing violence. Now we know that the PR squad on God's side will want to tell us that God is full of love. But really when you look at these uh, um, uh, sections of the Bible, it does more look like God is full of anger. See if I can uh, draw things, because remember the last time we said that we were going to meet in that main hallway and life would go back to normal where the heating system still isn't fixed so we can't show you the pictures on projector I've got to draw them by hand on this whiteboard uh, which means that you will not recognize a single picture you see tonight <laughs> but let's have a go and I'll at least tell you what the picture is meant to be well it's meant to be a, a clenched fist and it looks something like um, I just can't remember how many fingers I've got. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Pretty good. Um, <coughs> they're, they're all turning inwards, that's right, so uh, you can't see the nails. There. Uh, so, yeah, that's how it looks like to the outside world. We go and tell people, yes, God is love, but. A lot of people, the world out there, would think that often come, God comes across as more angry than kind. But the thing is, you see, it's not just the people out there. Us Christians get really embarrassed reading passages like these, don't we? Especially since, if you've been here before, we've heard that David is meant to show us what God's King Jesus is going to be like. And now we see him uh, acting in verse 2 ways, where... He measures people out in lines and puts them to death. And we think, how on earth does that get to look anything like the Lord Jesus? So how do we find and handle pastors like this when we see them come up in the Bible? But I'm going to tell you from this passage in the Bible, I'm going to enjoy doing it as well, that God is absolutely great. And this chapter in the Bible is going to show us that as good as any other chapter of the Bible. Let me show you how. The first thing that you will see, and it's there uh, in your uh, notes too, is that nothing will stop God keeping his promises. If I can <coughs> do a much simpler drawing, which you probably will recognize. Nothing will stop God's king keeping his promises. Okay? People aren't going to recognize and accept the king that God has promised uh, because they think he's lovely and they all want to submit to his rule. No, on the contrary, what they prefer to do instead is to throw the whole kitchen sink at him. They come at him trying to get rid of him. That's what these other nations are trying to do with God's king. You can see in verse 12, all the different places they throw the kitchen sink from. It's coming from everywhere. Isn't it? All directions are uh, against him. From Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, <coughs> and there's had a day himself. And everybody's having a go to get rid of of this God's king. And yet, you see verse 14, that 
God was with him. God gave him victory to David wherever he went. And to make the point, it's there again in verse 6. So uh, I suppose I could write the word wherever uh, round the box. Wherever you go, there is success and victory given to God's king. Now we'll see the implications of that uh, later, but it is worth us taking note that this is God's king and there will be nowhere where there's no go for this king to reign and to rule. And as Hannah helpfully told us in her children's slot, this is a small picture, there's a bigger picture to come, and the bigger picture to come, I think I put in my notes, is there in Ephesians uh, chapter 1 verse 9 and verse 10. <clears throat> I've lost my notes, but there it is, where God promises and plans to unite all things in heaven and on earth in Jesus. Okay, so that's just not local Eden, Philistines, all those little kind of tin pot kingdoms around Israel. This is unite all things in heaven and on earth in Jesus. This is the reign of God's king everywhere. So at the end of the world, you will be able to see this box written over the kingdom of Jesus wherever will be his reign. And the Lord will be with him uh, and gives victory to Jesus everywhere. And uh, it's just uh, a helpful thing for us to realise, isn't it, that that is actually how uh, God will be. There is going to be no one standing up ultimately to oppose him. Now, I don't know whether you're keen on rugby. I'm very keen on rugby. And at the moment, I'm very happy with rugby because yesterday... England beat Wales. I was expecting us to uh, come a cropper at one point, but uh, no, we held on. And uh, it is a euphoric day for England whenever England beats Wales. Okay, and we're all happy, and uh, we go dancing away from Twickenham. But we know down the track at some point we are going to be meeting the All Blacks. And the trouble with the All Blacks is those guys just haven't learned how to lose to anybody. Now, it's not entirely true that uh, they are completely indefeatable. We have actually beaten them once or twice. Trouble is, next time they're turned up and it's almost like they're saying, hey, we were only kidding the last time, and then they stuff us again. <laughs> and so therefore, you know, it is just uh, wonderful that we can have some victories, but sooner or later someone's going to come and swallow us up. But here is God's victory, and it is absolutely comprehensive wherever you happen to put the pin on the map. His victory is there. And it's a fixture list where it doesn't have, you know, played or won most, drew some, lost one. No, there is not one single opponent that will come up against him because there is nothing that can stop God keeping his promises. It is massively important that we know that. Even though, 
as I said earlier, the kitchen sink might come from everywhere. Mm. Now, the second point that we need to uh, learn and understand is that these victories also show God's glory. The enemies of God show God's glory, not just by the way there's been war, but by the way there is coming in great wealth. Um, piles and piles and piles of... I don't know how you draw wealth, but I think in a quick moment uh, that is probably good enough. There's <coughs> wealth coming in from all corners, as you can see. So that actually, that is the main point of verse 12, that actually it's all the wealth that's coming in, the silver and gold, from all the nations he subdued, and then you get the list, Edom to uh, Hadadezer and Zerba. So the wealth is coming in. Now, if you were here last week, you might notice the connection, because last week we know that God was going to let David, or one of his successors, build him a house or a temple so that the glory of God could be seen. Here's the cash coming in to make it happen. And it is also, therefore, another way in which the Bible says and describes how God's glory is seen and recognized. If you like, it's a visual add-on for people to see how wonderful God's kingdom is when they see this temple magnificently built to reflect all the riches that are contained in this kingdom. And that is another little mountain range of promise, if you want to remember what Hannah said in the children's slot, where the Bible promises things. And remember we did say this, didn't we, even when Hannah wasn't here, that when God keeps a promise, he keeps it three times. Once in the Old Testament, once in the time of Jesus, and once in the future in his eternal kingdom. Now, Here's a promise where the worst of nations come in, and I want you to just keep a finger in 2 Samuel 8 and turn to page 619 to Isaiah chapter 60. Page 619 and Isaiah chapter 60. And if you look at verse 5, right at the bottom of the page of the church bible if you've got one uh, Isaiah chapter 60 verse 5 you can't ever miss finding Isaiah it's pretty much in the middle of the bible but if you open the middle of the bible and go slightly to the right you find Isaiah and it's a big book so you shouldn't find it too difficult and page 619 in the pew bible makes it easier or church bible and Isaiah chapter 60 verse 5 you can see the last line says the worth of the nations shall come to you that's illustrated here in the Old Testament with David, the worth of nations is coming to him. See that? Now, keep that part, uh, keep Isaiah open, because I want to, to do your, show you a fun thing later. But when you get to the end of the Bible, the last book of the Bible, Revelation, and Revelation chapter 21, I think I wrote down the notes, uh, and verse 26, I think it is. Yeah, Revelation 21, 26. And again, you will see almost those words, that the glory of the nations comes to God's king. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 26. 
So there's a promise kept in the future as well. Now you said, Mike, you're forgetting something, aren't you? You told us it actually is promised fulfilled in the time of Jesus. Now, whenever did the worth of nations come to Jesus? Answer me that one. But you can answer that one, can't you? Haven't you been around Christmas? What happens at Christmas time? You get... You get Matthew... Uh, uh, two verse, uh, chapter 2 verse 11 I put that in the notes but that's where the wise men bring their gifts of gold frankincense and men now should I tell you the fun thing about Isaiah go back to Isaiah chapter 60 and now flip over the page and have a look at Isaiah chapter 60 verse 6 and you will find the people will come from the east and they shall bring Gold and frankincense, and the nations will be bringing in their riches to the king. So you see, here again is uh, God's wonderful promise being fulfilled of his glorious king kingdom being seen as glorious. Because wealth and nations have been brought to it, and therefore there will be no impoverished person in this future kingdom. Not attached a king who brings in such wealth and his glory is uh, so great but there is a third thing to understand God's enemies show that nothing can stop God keeping his promises God's enemies show that they too will add to the view of God's glory but it is true isn't it in this part of the Bible that we see that God defeats his enemies, destroys them actually and that's the difficult bit for us <coughs> to handle because if you look at verse 2 that David measures them with a line making them lie down on the ground and two lines he measured to be put to death and one full line to be spared that, that sounds a bit like ISIL doesn't it? <coughs> Why do we have to have something like that happen? But I suppose really to be <coughs> blunt with your um, explanation. When you begin to look at the world from the perspective of the cross, what you discover is that the nations, in the end, hate God's king and put him to death and hate his kingdom along with him. That is what our history tells us, that ultimately um, man, given half a chance, will murder his maker. That's what the cross tells us. And these guys that are coming at David, are not, and that David is just defeating and destroying, are all the people who have tried in their part to destroy David. And he has uh, destroyed them. And as we therefore look at what happened with David, we need to understand that ultimately the kingdom of God, and I know the church doesn't say this very much, but I think we do need to say it because it's true, ultimately the kingdom of God doesn't come by public demand it comes by armed might that's how the bible actually ends 
but notice who's doing it. It is God's king only who will defeat his enemies in this way. His people are not involved in that destruction. So therefore we are not ISIL. The Bible tells us, vengeance is mine and I will pay, repay, says God, as an incentive for us to therefore not repay. But it tells us instead, if you look at the end of Romans chapter 12, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's in need, look after him. Jesus himself said, love those, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Mm. So we are not isolated, but God will destroy his enemies. And I want you to see him doing that for two reasons. And I think I want to uh, draw it like this if I can. And this time to draw uh, an open palm. Um, open palm, just in case. <laughs> and uh, I've lost my green pen. Um, I think I probably put it in my pocket. Yes. Um, and to draw someone standing there in absolute <coughs> safety, in case you're wondering. Uh, but that's what you see in verse 15, isn't it? If you look at verse 15, so David reigned over all Israel and David ministered justice and equity to all his people. He had to defeat his enemies and destroy them if he was going to ultimately keep his people in safety. And when you read the end of the Bible, you don't, in other words, see God keeping his people behind a high wall and keep, keep, keeping them safe while their enemies are doing their best to get at them. No, what you see is actually God destroying the enemies. And when wonderfully you get to Revelation chapter 21, you've had a look at verse 26, but if you just sneak a preview of the previous verse, verse 25, the interesting thing about heaven is that the gates of the city are always open. Why can you have the gates of the city open? Because frankly, there aren't any enemies that are going to come in anymore. Mm. Now until then, in Revelation, the whole book of Revelation, Christians are under the hammer. They're getting knocked about left, right and center. Okay, the church in Revelation, all the pages of Revelation, is getting hit and getting hit hard. And we are living in those Revelation days in the sense that before Jesus comes, that is what happens. Christians get hit and they get hard. I think at the moment the reckoning is something like a Christian dies every nine minutes in the world. But when Jesus comes, and it is very interesting to see how Jesus does end Revelation with a battle. As I said earlier, the kingdom comes not by public demand, but by um, armed uh, and uh, military uh, might and Jesus wins that battle I think in one part is called Armageddon and at that point there is perfect safety and the gates of Jerusalem from that moment on are open as a picture of the perfect safety that people are in and that big picture you see in a little way in 
verses 15 to 19, where David reigns over all Israel, administers justice and equity to all his people, and then all these different people are in positions of keeping everything in order and working properly as it should, that's the picture of a kingdom at peace with itself and working properly. And that is how uh, the chapter ends, but only when God has destroyed his people. Uh, has, has not destroyed his people. <laughs> Someone shoot me for saying that. <laughs> uh, only when God has destroyed his enemies, then there is safety. But also notice that in the middle of it all, there is mercy. Just happen to notice in verse 9 that there is no attack against toy. In other words, those who don't attack God's kingdom, all the rest of them are trying to do that, and therefore they are destroyed, but those who aren't going to attack <coughs> God's kingdom, who want to be David's friends, are greeted and live in safety. And even when you look at verse 2, it is interesting, is it? Yes, two-thirds die, but one-third are kept alive. Why do you think that is? And if we see that one third being kept alive, are we going to turn around and say to God, God, you're very unfair, you know. I mean, they all deserve to be put to death because they've all been attacking your king, but you've chosen to keep one third alive. Mm -hmm. Are we going to accuse God of unfairness at that point? Or might we say, what a God of mercy. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't that be the better thing to say? And when you hear people get angry when there's a big word called predestination and the whole uh, teaching of that is that God chooses <coughs> to keep some people safe and he chooses them and who is going to do that with but I want to suggest to you that 2 Samuel chapter 8 verse 2 is a really helpful little picture of how predestination works <coughs> where people who should be put to death alongside everybody else are nonetheless kept alive. And it is interesting to see how two lines he put to death, and then how do you describe the third line? One full line is kept alive. And God is very merciful as he does that. So, bring it all to land, what can we learn? But the thing is, I don't think anyone actually today, even if people don't go to church and have got nothing to do with God in most weeks, most days. I don't think anyone today would really want to call themselves God enemy. I think everybody thinks that they're on the side of the angels. And especially if, whether you go to church or not, you've been brought into the club in some way, maybe you were baptised as a nipper, and people then think, oh well, you know, I'm definitely in the God squad. I'm part of God's little... I'm not as close to the center. Some people are, but I'm there or thereabouts. That's how most people think. <coughs> and yet I think the reality, especially when we get close to the Bible and see what it really says, I think it begins to expose that actually there are many people who might think that they are on God's side, but actually aren't entirely happy with him when you get to passages like this. They're much more inclined to criticize him and they say, how dare you tell me about hell? I don't think anyone's going to hell. I don't believe in such a place. How can a loving God have a 
future like that for people. And so whilst claiming to believe in him and somehow be sympathetic, they actually oppose him. And the idea that this is actually the king that he really is. And the consequences of rejecting his kingdom. Now, I think actually it is possible for people who are perhaps mild-mannered and wonderfully uh, good in lots of ways to nonetheless actually have hearts that are against God's king and express it when we come up against pastors that talk about God's king in judgment. And I want to suggest, humbly and as gracious as I can, that actually wouldn't it be a better thing rather than us say, hey, how dare God kill people like this and look at the two-thirds, that we should instead be the one-third people that say to God, God, but I'm looking at this one-third and I can see that you are a God of mercy. Talk to God and use verse 2 to talk to him and say, God, can you see verse 2? You and your king shows mercy to people. Please would you put me into that one third. Please would you show mercy on me that I might then serve your king the way these people did in 2 Samuel chapter 8. Wouldn't that be a better prayer to make than to resist the God who is going to judge? But then secondly, it may be that you're someone who's been in church circles before and all this idea of God's greatness that we've been talking about in, 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 our, in our services and in tonight might be old hat to you and you say, yeah, I know God is great but can I point out to you how God's greatness is seen in this passage? And that is that the wealth of the nations are brought in so that this temple could be built so that God's greatness could be seen by the rest of the world. Now today, we don't build temples to show God's greatness to the rest of the world, but we do have the gospel that shows the greatness of God to the rest of the world. And those who want God's greatness to be seen, rather than bringing their wealth into the temple as they used to, well, the wealth will come in to be given to the gospel project of making God's greatness known. So it is just uh, helpful for us to say that we've got to be careful not just to be all mouth, but to put our money where our mouth is and say, actually, if I don't want to bring my wealth into the work of the gospel, then how can I really say that I believe in God's greatness and want it to be seen? by the rest of this world in the way that the temple used to be seen by the people at that time it's a challenge isn't it and I think we need to take it home with us but also thirdly and very very quickly what happens if you are one of God's people and frankly you are finding it hard at the moment at the way people are rejecting God's king and in the process rejecting you and you're finding it really hard the way people just think that you are slightly odd or perhaps come at you in a much harder way because you want to love and follow the Lord Jesus. What can this passage say to us? Well, it does say to us, isn't it, that actually we need to be trusting God to keep his promise 
that vengeance is his and that he will repay. And we need to say, actually, in this time, I'm not going to retaliate and do what normally comes instinctively, which is to fight back. We've got to say, now I'm going to let God look after his enemies. I'm not going to go near touching them. But instead, I'm going to do what he wants me to do, which is to love my enemies and to pray for those who persecute me. And if I want some help in praying from this passage, then why don't you pray that your enemies may be part of the one-third that God will rescue, that God will keep safe, and that God will bring to serve his king? It's a great prayer, isn't it? Well, let's take a moment to pray now. And uh, I'll give you a minute. And you talk to God from what you've heard today, from what you've heard tonight, and have your own private conversation with him. Maybe that you're someone who does want to ask God to park you in that third, so that you have mercy and so that you can serve God's king. Maybe that you're someone who says, God, I don't think I'm bringing my treasure uh, into the uh, making of your greatness known to others. And you want to talk to him about that. It may be that actually you want to talk to him about uh, people who are persecuting you, people who you know who are pretty anti. Pray that they'll be drawn in. Let's have a moment and after a minute I'll pray. Father, we do want to thank you very much for revealing your goodness to us tonight, your greatness in the truth that nothing will stop your promises coming true and taking place. Thank you for the great truth that you will reveal your glory and even use your enemies in that process, drawing in all that is needed to establish your temple that the world might see your greatness. And we thank you for the way that you've shown us tonight how one day there will be no enemies to disturb the peace of your people. Mm. And how much those who were your enemies will talk about your mercy. <clears throat> Father, we pray that these truths might light up our lives, might light up our prayers this week. Mm. And please, would you help us to keep us confident in your promises and to keep us bringing our own uh, contribution to the work of the gospel that such a great God might be made known. And please would you help us where we are challenged and uh, face uh, uh, folk who want to make life difficult for us because we're Christians. Please would you help us to uh, love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us, do good for them knowing that ultimately vengeance is yours and can be trusted to repay, for you've shown us how that's what you do. Please, Lord, give us a bigger picture of your greatness that we might live our lives to your glory, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen.